Welcome to the HealthSpan Project, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn science and biology that affect longevity and quality of life so you can become more confident, intentional, and proactive about your health. Remember, it's not just about how long you live, but how well you live. I'm your host, Dr. Khan. Welcome to another episode. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to start out by sharing a story with you. I took on a patient not too long ago and While going through their assessment, um, they tell me how they've always been in quote-unquote good health, and every time they've had blood work done or any kind of assessment done, they haven't been told if there is anything that's quote-unquote wrong. Long story short, we go ahead and do a thorough health assessment, uh, including a A1C, a hemoglobin A1C, which if you don't know, is a screening test for diabetes. This person tested positive for pre-diabetes. Now, When I tell him this information that they are very surprised, obviously, they're like, well, you know, I've been tested all these years and uh, how is it possible that my blood sugars are abnormal? And when we looked at the prior years, uh, year after year when their A1C was done, he was right. Technically speaking, he was always normal. But if you looked at the A1C for each year, you would notice that it was progressively getting higher and higher until miraculously one day it turns red on the lab report. All this is to say is that it's not a one and done thing when it comes to diabetes, meaning a lot is going on prior to that number turning red before you even get into that category of prediabetes or diabetes. The idea is that there's insulin resistance that has been happening for a long time before you get into the zone of prediabetes or diabetes. And this is to say that the disease is a spectrum of disease. On one end of the spectrum, uh, you have insulin resistance. On the other end of the spectrum, you have diabetes. So needless to say that looking at the progression of numbers increasing as the years are going forward, this was a clear sign that there was something going on in the realm of insulin resistance before this person became pre-diabetic. So today we're going to be talking about insulin resistance. And so it's important to kind of, you know, catch things earlier on so we can not only slow down the progression, but also to possibly reverse it. And that would be the scope of what I'm trying to cover here to understand insulin resistance to begin with so that uh, when we later talk about uh, biomarkers that help us kind of figure out where you might be on the spectrum of insulin resistance, prediabetes or diabetes, and then kind of to learn how to possibly slow these things down or to reverse them, you kind of have to first understand what is insulin resistance and what the pathophysiology of it is, meaning what is causing all of this. To get into it, insulin resistance is basically the body's inability to utilize insulin effectively in order to move blood glucose into the muscle cells. That's pretty much the layman's term of what insulin resistance is. And it starts to occur primarily at the site of the muscle cell, which is important to know because that is where insulin resistance starts. Now, to understand how glucose is used up by our bodies is to understand how the muscle cells utilize blood glucose. What happens is there's three things. First thing your muscle can do is 
to use oxidative phosphorylation, to use glucose as energy. So this is something where when glucose comes into the muscle cell, it gets broken down into pyruvate, and that metabolite then ends up going into the mitochondria and a Krebs cycle and all that good jazz, then maybe some of this is familiar to you from high school biology. But in any case, that when blood glucose comes in, it gets broken down into pyruvate, that goes into the Krebs cycle, and it's used up as energy because it produces a lot of ATP, that oxidative phosphorylation process. So that's one. The second step is uh, glycolysis. So glycolysis is similar to what I just described, where glucose is taken up again in the muscle cells, and it's broken down to pyruvate, but that pyruvate doesn't go through the Krebs cycle. It ends up actually going through another process and ends up being turned into lactic acid, and the energy is still produced from this process, but it's far less than what you get from oxidative phosphorylation. And the third step is glycogen formation. Glycogen formation is basically taking glucose again from blood into muscle cells and actually creating like a net of glucose out of it, which is called glycogen, which is a stored form of glucose. And yes, this brings us back to what I said as muscle being the primary site of insulin resistance, because it is also the primary site of glucose storage. And this is going to come back later when we talk about some other details, but keep that in the back of your mind, understanding that a lot of glucose storage happens in the muscle cells. It is our, it is the primary site of glucose disposal for our bodies. Pretty much if you want to kind of, uh, put numbers to it, about 80% of glucose storage happens in muscle cells and about 20% happens in the liver. So now understanding these three things that we just talked about as how glucose is used up from blood glucose into muscle cells. So what goes wrong? This is where Dr. Gary Schulman's study comes into play. Dr. Gary Schulman is one of the leading diabetes experts uh, in our country, and a lot of his research has actually helped us understand the process of insulin resistance as well as how it then progresses to prediabetes and diabetes. So one of his studies actually showed that they took a group of people that are quote-unquote normal, meaning they don't have any uh, blood sugar abnormalities, and they compared it to a group of of patients with diabetes. What they noticed was that there was no difference between these two groups when it came to oxidative phosphorylation for glucose usage, meaning that first step that we talked about that utilizes mitochondria and Krebs cycle, which produces the most amount of energy. And there was no difference in glycolysis, meaning the second step that we talked about, or not step, but second way that we talked about of how glucose is utilized. Again, gives us ATP, just not as much as the first one. So there were no difference between these two things when it came to these two groups. What they noticed, however, was that in patients that did not have any blood sugar problems, they were able to utilize blood glucose and make it into glycogen in their muscle cells far more than patients that had uh, diabetes. And if you really want to get technical... Patients that had diabetes, their glycogen storage was 50% less than the group that did not have diabetes using the same amount of glucose that was given to them. So that is where the problem was occurring, meaning not being able to dispose of blood glucose into muscle cells for glycogen storage is what the biggest difference was between people that have abnormal blood sugar regulation than people that did not have that problem. So then you want to ask, well, where was the problem in this process then? 
Well, another Dr. Schulman's study actually helped us figure that out. Another one of his studies showed that the problem was at the GLUT4 transporter level. So what the heck is that, right? Well, to move back a little bit in our understanding, when insulin tries to move glucose from blood into muscle cells, it first needs to attach to an insulin receptor on the surface of that cell, kind of like a key and lock. Insulin is the key receptor on the cell surface is the lock. When that interaction happens, there is a couple of other interactions that occur in that pathway that allow this GLUT4 transporter to come up to the surface of the cell. And it opens up and basically allows glucose from the blood to pass through into the muscle cells. It's kind of like the door that allows the outside glucose to come inside, mean, the outside meaning the blood, the inside meaning the muscle cell. Now, one of his studies showed that that is where the problem was occurring. And what was happening was they noticed that people that had high lipid stores, meaning high fat stores, cholesterol, things of that nature, ended up having a lot more free fatty acids. And these free fatty acid metabolites, meaning when you break down these free fatty acids, metabolites such as DAGs can actually cause interaction problems or interference rather between this process of insulin to insulin receptor to a couple of things happening to then GLUT4 transporter being allowed to come up to the surface of the cell. So in essence, higher fat stores were causing an issue between this interaction of insulin and glucose. So needless to say that high lipid uh, stores, high free fatty acids are pretty much toxic to this pathway. And it's important to understand that this is fat overload that we're talking about inside the muscle cell, not the outside, but the inside. And that's the driving force of insulin resistance. So the problem was that when more and more of this fat accumulation was occurring in muscle cells, the harder it was for the blood glucose to get inside the muscle cells. This would then cause the pancreas to put out more insulin, basically trying to force that glucose into the muscle cell as much as possible, meaning this is where you start to see the rise in insulin levels before you even see huge changes in blood glucose. Therefore, hyperinsulinemia, meaning high levels of insulin, are the first indicator that there's some form of insulin resistance going on or some level of insulin resistance going on. So where does the role of carbohydrates come in here, especially, obviously, carbohydrates that you're uh, taking in in your meals? So if you're already having issues with bringing in blood glucose from the blood into the muscle cell, and now you're eating even more carbohydrates, well, it's got to go somewhere, right? If, especially if it can't get into the muscle, which is, again, the primary site of blood glucose disposal. Well, it's going into the liver. Now, liver is not as resistant to taking up glucose into its cells, even if it has some fat accumulation in it. Unlike muscle cells, liver cells also have a glucose transporter, but it's called GLUT2 rather than GLUT4. And that transporter does not rely on insulin to activate it. So pretty much all this passive movement of blood sugar can occur into liver cells without depending on insulin. But the problem is that the more and more carbohydrates that you take in, especially in the form of fructose, 
they start to then get converted into fat which is called lipogenesis or hepatic lipogenesis. So this is where you start to also accumulate fat in the liver. And we've already learned that high fat stores increase fatty acids, which have metabolites like DAGs, which then go back to the muscle cell and interfere with the whole insulin and glucose process and worsening the insulin resistance issue. And keeping in mind that even though liver is allowing this carbohydrate or these sugars to come into its cells and possibly converting some of it into fat, this then goes on to start the process of fatty liver disease. And I'll cover fatty liver disease in a separate episode. It merits its own discussion, and I don't want to overload you with information on this episode. But that's what ends up happening with high carbohydrate intake, along with what has already been happening as far as high uh, lipid storage are concerned. It basically worsens the picture. So it's a vicious cycle. Basically, you start out with high glucose, which then starts to cause increase in liver fat storage, which increases uh, DAGs because of the free fatty acids, increases fat muscle storage, which ends up causing the disruption in the insulin and glucose pathway, and the cycle goes on and on and on. So that's one mechanism of why insulin resistance happens. Lipids obviously are playing a huge role in it, which is why um, knowing different types of cholesterol levels in your body are too super important. And again, we're going to cover much more of that in a separate episode of cholesterol and lipids all on their own. Having said that, another thing to think about is physical inactivity. Physical inactivity increases body weight, especially when it comes to fat storage, especially when it comes to visceral adipose storage. Visceral adipose is fat around your organs, meaning the fat that you cannot see with naked eye. What we see when we look at overnourished individuals is subcutaneous fat, meaning a person that's visibly overnourished, what you're looking at is the subcutaneous fat, which is the fat underneath the skin. Now, I'm not saying that that's not a bad thing, but compared to visceral adipose tissue, visceral adipose tissue is way, way worse than subcutaneous fat. The reason I say that is that you can have somebody that visibly looks like they might be quote-unquote normal weight. However, they could have excess amount of visceral adipose tissue, meaning fat around their organs, specifically abdominal organs, and that fat is very inflammatory and causes the same types of disruption that we've talked about earlier in this episode. So physical inactivity obviously increases the chances and increases the likelihood of depositing visceral adipose tissue, which then leads to the same pathways that we talked about. And another thing with physical inactivity is that you don't get to have the benefit of angiogenesis. Angiogenesis, it's a way for your body to create new blood vessels. The more angiogenesis you have, the more pathways then you have to be able to not only provide nutrients to your muscle cells, but also to get rid of those excess free fatty acids and DAGs to try to help you not become so insulin resistant. If you're not very active, you don't get to have as much angiogenesis. So something to keep in mind. Now, other than that, of course, genetics hormones and medications play a role in insulin resistance too. Some people are just genetically predisposed to being the person who might develop insulin resistance or prediabetes and diabetes later on. So all the more reason to keep a check on your metabolic health. Hormones, especially something like cortisol, is very important in this pathway as well. Cortisol is our flight and fight response hormone. Evolution-wise, you wanted the surge of cortisol if you 
saw like a lion or something, you know, trying to chase after you because the body needs readily available energy to be able to help you get out of there and run, right? Now, bringing it back to present times, we don't have lions around. However, stress in and of itself causes this rise in cortisol, which then spills all this sugar into your bloodstream. But you're not running away from anything, meaning there's nowhere for that sugar to be utilized or go. So it just stays in your bloodstream, again, causing hyperinsulinemia. And then you know the rest as far as insulin resistance is concerned. Obviously, reducing stress helps in that situation. And medications such as certain antivirals or antipsychotics can also have similar issues when it comes to rise in blood sugar and causing insulin resistance. So all of these things working together can certainly cause an environment for your body to really be primed for insulin resistance, which is bad. So in order to know, one, are you insulin resistant? or maybe you're pre-diabetic, or are you already experiencing diabetes? You kind of have to know where you are on that spectrum to do anything about it. Earlier you catch yourself, the better. So there's obviously certain biomarkers that help you understand where you might be on that spectrum. And then there is things that we can do by way of exercise or certain other modalities, or maybe even pharmaceuticals that can be utilized for possible reversal of these conditions or maybe even slowing them down or maybe even slowing the progression down uh, so much that you don't have to worry about it in your later decades. So I will be covering which biomarkers are utilized to be able to kind of figure out where you might be on the spectrum, as well as the different modalities to prevent these conditions from happening or even reversing these conditions if they have already occurred on the next episode. So don't forget to join me on the next episode. We're going to be talking a lot more about this. I hope you've learned the pathophysiology of insulin resistance. I hope I've helped you understand it a little bit better. And I can't wait to join you on the next episode to learn even more as far as prevention and reversal of these conditions. Also, if you happen to be in the Northern Virginia area and are looking for a primary care doctor who does things like these and focuses on longevity, check us out at mosaictheorymd.com. We'd love to work with you. All right. Well, I'll see you on the next episode. If you liked what you heard on this episode, please do me a favor, share it with your friends and family and help them become more confident, intentional, and proactive with their health. They will thank you for it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode. Disclaimer, information shared on this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. 